today's episode, The Military and History of the Late Roman Empire. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Michael Kulikovsky, author of The Tragedy of Empire from Constantine to the Destruction of Roman Italy, published November 19, 2019 by Belknap Press. Um, and of course, you have other books as well um, that you've published through Harvard on this these subjects. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Happy to be here. So first, um, let's focus on, uh, well, in general, uh, what got you started in, in studying Roman history and, and and why did you write this latest book? I think probably playing with uh, little toy Roman soldiers as a child got me started on it. Um, and then, um, you know, discovering some sort of cheap Roman coins that my father had from when he was a, when he was a kid and, and, um, and then books, you know, looking at um, Roman engineering and the, you know, the feats of, of driving bridges across rushing rivers and Julius Caesar and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it evolved into kind of making a choice between do I want to work on, do I want to be a classicist or do I want to be a medievalist and work on the Middle Ages? And mm. I sort of ended up splitting the difference and studying the, really concentrating on the fall of the Roman Empire as my, the core area that I work on. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting how um how fascinated we are with the 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 fall, the destruction that the the um you know as it collapses. Um though it seems that collapse is maybe the wrong word that life went on for people. Absolutely. I mean I think part of the the fascination is that so many um you know European and and then successors to Europe's empires like the US um, imagined themselves or saw themselves in the Roman Empire, right? So that by studying the fall of the Roman Empire, in a sense, you're also studying or thinking about what does the end of your own, you know, political uh, existence look like? What does the end of your nation or your state look like? And so I think that's part of the attraction of this period. It's, it's sort of eternally um, attractive, going right back to, you know, the Renaissance and even earlier. And um, one of the things that I would say in terms of, of whether there was really a collapse yeah, there was a political collapse in the fifth century, in the 400s AD, the Western Roman Empire fell apart as a politically viable unit, it just disintegrated. Now, does that mean that life didn't go on? Life, of course, went on and life went on um, just at a slightly more localized level, um, with perhaps, you know, less, if you will, international contact uh, around around the Mediterranean world around Northern Europe. But the absence of the emperor, there was still an emperor in Constantinople back in the east, but um, and everybody sort of still thought they were part of a Roman world or an imperial world. But it was really quite meaningful when you lost when you lost um, an emperor, an emperor in the west, when you lost a, connect, a connected kind of Roman administration, mm -hmm. which is gone by the time you get to the four fifties, four sixties, four seventies. And uh, this question popped in my head, and maybe it's outside the scope of this book and other works you've done, but maybe not. Which is what what sort of military apparatus existed after the you know the quote fall? What existed to protect or or you know take care of these regions? Right. I mean, the the, the fall of the Roman Empire at one level is a disintegration of um, the ability of the state to pay its soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really a sort of a breaking up of 
areas that used to be connected to one another, that used to pay taxes, that used to have, you know, imperial governments um, and, you know, and legal cases and so on and so forth and protected by a formal standing army, those became subject to warlords, basically, and men who could, you know, the princes, kings, um, local leaders of every sort who could um, provide localized protection to people who gave them, you know, their allegiance. But um, it's it's really the the if you want the political collapse is partly a result of these warlords clashing with one another and breaking things to the point where there's no Roman state left. Mm-hmm. So what? Um, and again, I feel like I, I keep going a little bit beyond what but your, your work is. But you know, from that from the fall to about the time of Charlemagne, what existed as far as um, you know, again, control or um, protection of borders or people in societies? Yeah, it depends where you're talking about. I mean, this is the part, part of the issue is that sort of, um, you know, north of the Loire River in what's now France um, was then Northern Gaul. Basically, life breaks down into a very, very localized level. And we're talking about you know, polities at, at the scale of a, you know, not, not much bigger than a large town nowadays. Um, you know, um, and there it was just basically what you could protect with a handful of men who followed you and what you could, you know, what you could extract from the peasants who were farming there. Mm-hmm. Go further south and a lot of the Roman state, um, and a lot of the Roman apparatus survives. It just doesn't serve an emperor anymore. I mean, you have, so for instance, in what's now basically Switzerland and um, bits of eastern France and the Burgundian kingdom in the 5th and the 6th centuries. It looks very much like it did under Roman rule, except with a Burgundian king um, sitting in Lyon rather than a Roman governor sitting in Lyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Italy, um, certainly for the the first half of the 500s, it's uh, it, it, not much changes. Um, it's when the Roman emperor in the east, Justinian, comes in and conquers Italy again, that things fall apart and really, really break into pieces for good. 20 years of fighting just ruins the ruins the agricultural capacity of the peninsula and Italy becomes, I mean, really a, a basket case for the next 200, 300 years. Mm-hmm. And then you've got places like... Um, like Spain, where some of it just disappears into into obscurity. We don't know what's going on in you know what's now Portugal, for instance. We basically have no idea what's going on um, in the six hundreds and seven hundreds. Whereas in places like what's now you know Catalonia, around Barcelona, say or Tarragona, we know that you know the bishops are very strong. There are kings. They pay taxes. There's every you know it's. Um, in Zaragoza, there's even a working amphitheater still, you know, in the in the 500s. So it's um, it really depends on wh- what you're looking at, and it's certainly North Africa, very little changes under the Vandal kings. It's really not until um, the Islamic conquest, 200 years after that, that, that things really fundamentally change. Mm-hmm. And it seems that um, none of the armed groups really had the the capability of of conducting major operations there were no war machines you know in a sense um right i mean there's you know the, the in the first generations of, of of these kingdoms the first iterations of them a lot of the men who you know served the kings had also served in the roman army at some point or another in the past so the knowledge is there mm-hmm. what's not there is the numbers mm-hmm. and what's not there is the um if you will the infrastructure right the roman army uh, the, the roman empire really was a huge huge machine for taking the agricultural produce of the land and turning it into something that would feed soldiers um, on the frontiers. And that required, you know, bringing grain from 
from literally hundreds of miles away to from where it was grown to bases where the Roman soldiers were garrisoned. And that capacity simply disappeared. Um, and, the Ro- and, and also roads got worse, right? I mean, the Roman Empire was linked by extremely good quality roads. And if those aren't maintained, and it's expensive to keep up roads, then sending armies really long distances becomes very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I'm assuming, and you know, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, that the Eastern Eastern Roman Empire at this time simply didn't have the resources to to take back or protect or control that area. That's right. The Eastern Empire was um, uh, really sort of sandwiched between um, a powerful Persian Empire on in what's now basically sort of the frontier is now basically in Syria and, and Jordan and um, Iraq. Uh, but then also the rise of Slavic communities, tribes in the Balkans. So losing control of the Balkans, which is just an open wound for the 500s and 600s, uh, means that there's really, it's just, it's, it's a sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a resource um, drain for the emperors. And it doesn't really matter how much, you know, how much treasure you throw at it. It's, it, it just, it sucks all of the, um, all of the energy of defense out. And there's not really, there's not really much the emperor can do. Mm-hmm. And what uh, did the Eastern Roman Empire have that allowed it to at least have some semblance of an empire or so? Right. Well, I mean, a number of things. I mean, the and this is an argument that I that I that I make at some some length in in Tragedy of Empire is that one of the big differences between the East and the West was in the West um, in the four hundreds in the three hundreds and four hundreds you had a powerful powerful aristocracy that didn't really need the Roman state to function, right? You had men who were who, whose incomes were so astronomical that they weren't dependent on having an empire to protect them. In the East, that didn't exist. The, the men who ran the Eastern Empire were basically middle class in, in, in a meaningful sense. And mm. their, their existence, their strength, their power was dependent upon being able to hold public office and monetize public office under a Roman emperor. And so they were strongly invested in keeping the emperor in place, keeping imperial structures going, because that's what kept them going. Mm. In the West, you know, ultimately, some of these, these rich old, these rich grandees could just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, well, you know, now we don't have an emperor. Now I've got this, this king over here, but I'm okay. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's part of it. The other big difference is um, that somewhere probably around the 340s, 350s, a brand new sense, a source of gold, is discovered probably in the Caucasus. And what that means is that the Eastern Roman Empire has a constant stream of readily mintable new gold supplies. Mm. And the Western Empire doesn't, that never makes it West. So the Western Roman Empire basically is reliant upon a dwindling money supply of precious metals. And the Eastern Empire has really sort of seemingly endlessly renewable source of um, new gold for coinage. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Michael Kulikowski, author of The Tragedy of Empire. You can find more information about the book on the Belknap Press website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So tell me then, um, Tragedy yeah, of Empire. Tragedy of Empire. <laughs> what, uh, what, what time periods does it cover and, um, and, and how do you break that book down? Well, it's so I, I initially started um, writing a book that was going to cover 
from the, the sort of the high Roman Empire under Trajan and Hadrian mm-hmm. all the way to the fall of the West. And um, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I ended up talking to my editor and we decided, you know what, why not make it two books? Mm-hmm. So I have, uh, back in 2016, I published The Triumph of Empire, mm-hmm. which ran from the Emperor Hadrian. So around um, the start of the AD, of, you know, it, the second century AD, mm-hmm. right through to the middle of the fourth century. Um, and basically it looks at the, the transformation from, you know, the, the, the early imperial period where the empire is really kind of a gigantic, gigantic aristocratic household that mm-hmm. just takes in a huge amount of space and, and then eventually becomes a functioning bureaucratic state. Mm-hmm. That's the story of the triumph of empire. The tragedy of empire is how does this fourth century state, this, highly bureaucratized administrative state um, with a powerful imperial war machine, the ability to levy taxes from, you know, from from Scotland all the way to the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Mm-hmm. How does this gigantic administrative state basically fall apart? What goes wrong? What, mm-hmm. how, does, how does the process of disintegration take place? Mm-hmm. And so the, tra- the tragedy of empire picks up in the middle of the fourth century when the late empire is really kind of at the apex of its power um, and then takes us through the divergent courses that the Eastern and the Western empire takes in the fifth century. Mm-hmm. And then survey sort of ends with a survey of what does the successor, what does the succession to the empire look like in the West? And what does this thoroughly changed late empire look like in the East? Mm-hmm. So, you know, during the, the, the imperial period, it seems that I'm just, so my question is going to be about, you know, Mm -hmm. the influence of the military on the government uh, of Rome. You know, it seems like at some point, basically the the imperial guards were the ones deciding who's going to be emperor. You know, it's like the military was in charge behind the scenes. Right. I mean, the, so the, the fiction of the early Roman empire, and it's a fiction that doesn't really go away until, the fourth century is that the emperor is just another senator, just another aristocrat amongst the senatorial aristocracy. Mm-hmm. When the reality is that the emperor is an autocrat whose power depends upon the loyalty of the armies. Now, this could mean the Praetorian Guard in Rome itself, mm-hmm. although, or when they traveled with the emperor, as they did, or it could mean the loyalty of the provincial armies under under their um, legates, uh, imperial legates out on the frontiers. And what you really needed was, was a consensus amongst the aristocracy and the great military commanders that X or Y was was suited to be emperor and, and it was a good idea to have to allow him to stay, mm-hmm. to remain emperor. And occasionally, you know, emperors got assassinated. Um, <laughs> this was when they weren't, when they weren't popular, when they weren't um, fulfilling the various sort of um, public roles they were Meant to meant to fulfil, but um, then towards the end of the second century and the beginning of the third, the turnover of emperors speeds up, and in, in the third century, it's astonishing how many emperors you have, and that's partly because the armies, whenever they either win a victory or see another threat on the frontier, they make one of their own commanders emperor, and that emperor then has to go. Sort of is, is compelled to go and defeat whoever else is claiming to be emperor. Um, mm. And so it leads to a cycle of civil war and civil war and the armies putting up new emperors. 
and you know it's 50 years of of this instability until the until at the very end of the 200s um the emperor diocletian comes up with a way to sort of break that cycle of violence mm-hmm. what importance what what really what role did the emperor serve then you know because it sounds like it's just a figurehead in a sense to to a degree but but uh, you know can you explain that sure absolutely it's, it, the emperor is not a figurehead um in the early empire in the early empire he's absolutely essential to keeping a consensus of the ruling classes together right mm-hmm. when when the romans are in the 100s ad we're still to a large extent talking about a world a huge empire that is being ruled by romans for the benefit of romans and then in the course of the next couple of hundred years more and more people start feeling like romans and participating in um to some extent in actually feeling like they belong to the um, to the empire mm-hmm. and in that case the emperor is not so much a figurehead as the one thing that unites you know a greek speaker in uh what's now turkey with a person who a celtic speaker in what's now Brittany mm-hmm. or you know on the fringes of wales and it's the imperial image it's the sense that everybody is protected by and everybody is subject to this man this emperor that keeps everybody going and then you know and then in the 3rd century in particular um emperors lead on the battlefield right this is a period in which the the emperors are not figureheads they are they're, sol- they're mostly soldiers mm-hmm. and how much does uh religion or spiritual belief in you know in the emperor being you know de- what's the word i'm looking for you know the emperor is the emperor because the the deity of whatever they worship decided that you know well, it's an interesting. It's uh, Roman religion is so very different from what we think about religion as being. And of course, in the period that I cover in the tragedy of empire, the, the empire the empire becomes Christian very um, very thoroughly. But in the earlier period, you know, the the emperors are at some level themselves divine, right? They are they when they're dead, many of them are worshipped as you know as as gods. Mm-hmm. The imperial cult, the cult to the um sacrificing to the to the genius of the emperor is just ubiquitous so it's again it's a sense of belonging that you know the emperor is what keeps the having the emperor the emperor's health and safety the empire's health and safety is what keeps the universe you know spinning round and then of course as you move into the period that um is covered in tragedy of empire there it's much more explicitly that um the emperor is you know to some extent given by god by the christian god and then certainly part of his role and part of his justification for being emperor is protecting orthodoxy protecting true belief mm-hmm. and so that's sort of there's a transformation it's a, think about it, it's a very profound transformation culturally that mm-hmm. is um you know one of the major differences between uh, early and and and, and late um, late imperial culture can you talk about the role of christianity in in roman culture with with emphasizing sort of the military did they how it affected the military structure sure i mean christianity grows up and in large part because the the there's so much mobility inside the roman empire right i mean you can go from again you can go from syria to um you know york in the north of england um in the course of a couple of months and somebody who's born in egypt can end up living their lives out in paris you know this is sort of the thing this is the sort of thing that um is was unheard of in earlier periods and became unheard of again after the Roman Empire the, and that means that you know people bring their 
beliefs and their local customs with them. And there are hundreds upon probably tens of thousands of local gods across the Roman Empire. And people who travel take their local gods with them. And who are some of the most mobile people in the world in this period? Soldiers. So one of the one of the vectors, undoubtedly, of the spread of all sorts of religions um, and the universalizing of a variety of religions is the mobility of the of the military. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there's a transition in the fourth century uh, in which, you know, beginning under Constantine in the three tens and three twenties, the Roman Roman soldiers, Roman legionaries go out into battle under very explicitly Christian symbols. And then this becomes part of, uh, you know, in in place of the imperial, or or alongside the imperial image, you also get um, a whole variety of Christian imagery that is part of the sort of the esprit de corps of of given given units. Mm -hmm. And did did it reach the point where non-Christian religions were were dangerous and and consider and something that had to be destroyed, or was it more like you know it's time for you to embrace Christianity? <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it, both. The answer is both. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know there was not f- forced conversion is is not a thing really, mm-hmm. but the sort of gradual harassment of non Christian forms of worship out of the public space, out of the public sphere is something that's already happening by the 370s, 380s. And, uh, you know, over time, it does just push non-Christian varieties of belief to the margins. They survive, you know, they survive for several hundred years, um, but they become minority tastes of one sort or another. Let's put it that way. And of course, you know, there's a lot, there's a huge debate about what constitutes conversion to Christianity. I mean, is, is a peasant plowing the fields the same thing as a you know as a as an intellectual talking about theology and the answer is no but they're both non the one way or another they're both christians mm-hmm. and uh during the period covered in um in your book in tragedy of empire i'm trying to get a sense of what motivated a person to join the roman military was it they were poor and and that was their best way upwards or was something else going on so there's a series of things. I mean, the at, the at the level of the common foot soldier, there's a lot of conscription. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conscription from the rural population. There is uh, there are all sorts of laws that if you're born to if your if your father's a soldier, you you follow your father into the army, and that's actually legally uh, binding in all sorts of ways. It's hard to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is plenty of evidence for some level of social mobility in inside the Roman army. So that's, you know, for, for the, the peasant agricultural classes of the empire, that's probably the main motivator. Mm-hmm. Town folk generally don't join up for the most part. That's, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other, but the other main sources are the officer corps, which is highly, as a hugely important um, source of social mobility in the fourth and fifth century. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, you start as a sort of junior commissioned officer, People from all over the empire come together, develop a relatively homogeneous culture uh, in in the in the officer corps. Many of them end up serving sort of in the close bodyguard uh, protection of the emperor to start with, and then go on to hold very high military commands. And that's part of what binds the empire together for a good 150 years: is this very very geographically diverse group of men who join who enter the enter the the ranks of junior officers and work their way up that's sort of the 
the the people who really make decisions at the imperial level are are these these guys and you know they can come from anywhere and this is the really interesting thing some of them you get you know we we have in the fourth century examples of you know a highly educated greek speaker from antioch in syria mm-hmm. alongside a sort of country gentry from what's now the the, the uh, plains of hungary the hungarian plain the pusta mm-hmm. to you know petty kings from from the caucasus right so from what's now georgia and azerbaijan mm-hmm. uh, who all become they all join the officer corps they're all recruited as men in their late teens early 20s and we find these people all over the empire all over the all over the empire kind of ruling the ruling the world at this um what would you call it middle management ranks um mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. and did they have a sense of you know roman but of you know how nowadays we say someone maybe is irish american or or some you know they they did did the romans have that like the romans didn't have that they had a they had a very very real sense of regional sort of qualities you know that um but so you know in the fourth century we have uh, several instances of pannonians so people from what's now you know sort of um hungary and bits of austria being rustics and not and not you know not fully civilized in the same way that we that and there are other, all sorts of other stereotypes about provincial backgrounds mm-hmm. um but ultimately this was there's no there's not really a distinction between i'm a roman you're not a roman it's just like it's it's kind of like the sort of you know um ethnic jokes and bad taste kind of thing mm-hmm. um that's what uh that's that that's a very familiar um roman sort of fourth century fifth century roman attitude mm-hmm. um there is in in the fifth century there's a there develops a clearer sense of people who are just simply from so far or recruited from so far away that they're not romans so people who are join the armies as you know sort of as mercenaries to some extent um and you know so like the huns who appear in the fifth century mm-hmm. um they're quite clearly not regarded as belonging to the roman world you know mm-hmm. in some meaningful sense did um so considering that these officers were noble and you know higher standing they still it sounds like they still had to follow orders you know if you were a certain level you were told to report for duty in such and such country you had to do it you know yep yep uh, no very definitely the roman army is hugely complex we have um we actually have for this period uh documents called the uh, the notitia dignitatum which is a uh, the basically the list of list of officers is what it means in english and um it gives us the entire order of battle um of the of the roman army in both east and west around the the turn of the 4th to the 5th century and so you can see the all of the different sorts of units who they who they reported to where they were and you can even trace some troop movements in various ways uh, around the empire and it's but it's a very very effective army and uh, you know there are some scholars um, who've done some really really good work showing just how just sort of how um unstoppable the army the field army was when it was deployed against almost any other almost any other um military power mm-hmm. it's pitched battle the roman army is pretty much unstoppable it's not really until uh with the with a couple of of horrific um uh exceptions it's the a a, a roman battle array in the 4th century can just lay waste whatever it um whatever it goes through were the officers expected to do a certain term of service like the um the regular soldiers were 
Yeah, so regular soldiers served at least 20 years and sometimes considerably more. And the officers, um, really, it, in the early empire, you know, back under under Augustus or under Hadrian, um, the officer corps is, in, to some extent, amateur, right? They are, you know, you you leading an army, serving on the battlefield as an officer is part of the same kind of career that would see you arguing speeches in the Senate in Rome and administering provinces as tax, you know, as a, as a, and, and dispensing the law. Mm-hmm. In our period, in the, in the fourth and fifth centuries, being an officer is a career move, right? So yes, they serve, you can rise through the ranks. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you're, if you get on the wrong side of, of other officers, you might actually get cashiered and, and like be forced to leave the army at a certain rank. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a career and officers stay in it most of their lives. And so what about the idea that um, soldiers were expected to get awarded, you know, some some land or, or something when they completed their service? But then it also seems like that didn't always happen and caused issues. Yeah, the um, the idea of giving soldiers allotments on retirement is something that sort of um, goes by the wayside in the course of the, the earlier imperial period. And these soldiers are, for the most part, in our period, they're, they're mostly salaried men. They're mm-hmm. salaried men who, at, upon retirement, might buy some land, but this is the, they're not, there's no large scale granting of land to soldiers upon retirement. Okay. And so, and now I'm, I'm trying to, so if you can explain, so you had this very well, a system that ran well, and then it ended, it, it turned into a system where you had warlords fighting each other. Can you talk about what what the transition was, what was going on? Yeah, I can, and I'm happy to. Um, so a number of things happen. One is that there's a catastrophic defeat uh, in in the year three um, in the in between three seventy six and three seventy eight. Mm-hmm. There is a very substantial migration into the Balkans of. Um, basically uh, gothic refugees i think we can call them gothic refugees they are seeking new lands to get away from the huns there's no question of that mm-hmm. and the resettlement program if you want to call it that is badly badly mismanaged by roman officers trying to do some profiteering mm-hmm. and the uh goths and or m- many many of whom had served in the roman army you know in their youth for a period of service and so on mm-hmm. organize a revolt which ends up destroying the eastern field army very badly and it's a it's a series of flukes a series of errors and mistakes on the part of of the eastern um military and the eastern emperor valens but it's a real mess and in 378 valens is killed on the battlefield at adrianople and about uh two-thirds of the entire eastern field army so we're talking tens of thousands of men are killed i'm speaking with michael kulikovsky author of the tragedy of empire you can find more information about the book on the Belknap Press website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Just to interrupt quickly, so it sounds like maybe the Goths, these sort of retired soldiers, were able to use their skills to to fight effectively? Indisputably, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, there's no no question that, um, that the a bunch of Gothic officers who had clearly all served in the Roman army were able to operate very, very effectively um, and mobilize um, 
mobilize runaway slaves, mobilize miners um, in the Balkans and create a really effective resistance that was devastating. But what it did was not just devastate the, the tax revenues of the Balkans. It made it really, really hard to recruit a viable army um, in the decades that followed. And so that's one big problem. The other big problem, and, and Adrianople doesn't really do any damage to the West, but what it does do is create, and, and here is where I would uh, where I'm, I would put the real pressure point of transition from an effective military, mili- political military apparatus to a weakening and eventually dying military apparatus, and that's after the Goth after the Gothic Wars ends, and after a lot of these these new newcomers are settled, they keep getting recruited as or basically auxiliary forces to the imperial armies, but they don't have any prospects of rising through the regular ranks as and joining the governing elite. So every, many people have heard of the name Alaric, Alaric the Visigoth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Alaric, Alaric is somebody who was born on Roman soil, wanted desperately to be a Roman officer, and didn't have the career path that was open to you know, say the the princes from the Caucasus that I was telling you about a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Alaric discovered that the only way he could get what he wanted for himself and the only way he could get his men paid was by threatening to break the very system that he wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. So instead of what he really wanted more than anything else was to be a general in the Roman army and have the status and have the respect and have the salary of a, of a higher officer in the Roman army. What he got was a sort of second-class citizen status. And in order to sort of extract what he could get from the emperor, he ended up launching his personal following against other imperial armies. Not because he wanted to destroy the empire, because he wanted a place in it. Mm. And that example, it's not just Alaric, that example takes off. That's how warlordism starts. The idea that the best way to get yourself a piece of the action is to threaten to break the apparatus of the machine Mm-hmm. This becomes the tactic that works that and you know it doesn't take many generations of people behaving like that to really it doesn't take many years really of people threatening to break the system that they want to be a part of for it to fall apart and that's really what happens is that men like Alaric and there are dozens of them want to raise their own status, want to be able to reward the people who follow them, their personal retainers, if you will, and the way they go about doing it is to say. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to, I'm going to sack this city. I'm going to take it. I'm going to go into this armaments factory and steal all the weapons. And then you'll have to give me what I want. Mm-hmm. And you do that enough times, and there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. So this comment of mine might be superficial and, and incorrect, but but just correct me <laughs> how I need to. You know, it seems that Roman history is filled with uh, leaders who, at the right time, reformed and kept things going. But then at this point, when reformation of some sort was needed, no one did it, and it collapsed. Is that... That's fair. That, that's actually a fair thing to say, which is to say that nobody nobody actually had the capacity mm. to bring things back together and refocus interests on the center, right? Instead of... Uh, the, the, there was nobody who had the, the personal authority and the military authority, the military and the money, right? Those three things um, to to sort of get people looking in towards the center again, rather than 
fleeing from the center towards the peripheries and, and towards the local level. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of different people tried it in the four, you know, a bunch of different emperors tried it in the 440s, the 450s, the 460s, and they all failed. Mm-hmm. They all failed. Um, so tell me then, let, let's turn to, um, oh, actually, uh, the Varangian Guard, that, that name popped in my head. I, I've, what, what are they? Again, that's much. That's much later. The Varangian Guard is um, in the ninth and tenth centuries uh, okay. in Constantinople. Those are those are Vikings who who end up going down the down the rivers of Russia, ending up in the Black Sea and in Constantinople, and forming the bodyguard of the Byzantine emperors. Okay, yeah. I, okay, thank you. <laughs> it was yeah, rolling no. around in my head, and I was like, so so. As far as these these two books, um, how did you do your research? You know, what archives? What, where did you go? Well, I've been working on on this period, you know, since I was a graduate student, probably um, 30 years ago. And, um, you know, I'd written a book very specifically about the Gothic, the, the, the Goths and the Gothic rebellion of Alaric. And, and that made me want to set this period in the much, much wider story of how Rome stops looking like an ancient, like, like a gigantic version of an ancient city state and instead becomes a world empire. And that's really what inspired me. And, you know, the and it, it, it inspired me to, to start reading sources that I'd never, you know, read before and things that, um, you know, made me made me pay attention to legal texts in a way that I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. The most important sources that we have for the period covered by Triumph and uh, and the second and, and the first half of Tragedy of Empire mm-hmm. are inscriptions, right? And this is something that I spent, you know, years just reading through. There are gigantic these gigantic volumes, uh, the corpus of Latin inscriptions, uh, they're, you know, these gigantic folio volumes, and they're filled with literally the th- transcriptions of literally thousands and thousands of, of inscriptions that give us careers, they give us, you know, a variety of, you know, legal documents, they tell us about, um, you know, p- people's honors, they tell us about how people lived and how people died and where they, you know, where they lived and where they died and what they wanted to commemorate. And, Reading that sort of giving me a, Im- immersing myself in a background of of what did the, the provincial population of the Roman Empire look like when they left us the one thing that they really leave us, which is ins- inscribed monuments. Mm-hmm. That was a really a big part of the learning experience. And the other thing was coins. Um, mm. The Roman Empire is, you know, there are millions of Roman coins. Millions upon millions were minted during the Roman imperial centuries and. You know, they survive in huge quantities and they're very, very precisely datable and they all have different imagery and different messages. And particularly in times of really, really rapid transition and rapid, um, rapid change in the empire, mm-hmm. really paying attention to the coins, where they are issued, what do they say on them, what, what image is the emperor trying to project on the coinage uh, or what are his, you know, uh, money maker, money is, uh, trying to project in his name on the coinage. Mm-hmm. That teaches you so very, very much about the third and the fourth centuries. And it was sort of one of the great things and also took me back to my, you know, my childhood pleasure in playing with, you know, these, these mucky Roman coins. But coming back to it with a, with a, you know, with a scholar's um, eye and it tells you a lot about how, you know, how rapid political change happens by looking at the coins. It seems that, um, a lot of the records available to us now are, are basically co- um, materials written or copies made by medieval scholars. Or um, how would they have chosen, 
you know, what to record? Did they just show, record as much as they could or, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's far more is lost than survives, put it that way, um, uh, in terms of our sources. Uh, and it depends upon the taste of, you know, it, if something was not attractive to the tastes of a particular age, it didn't have a very good chance of survival. So there are a couple of big bottlenecks in in the transmission of our texts. One is already in our period, which is when the papyrus roll stops being used, and instead we get a codex, um, which is just a book, mm-hmm. a modern book. And that happens between the third and the and the fourth centuries. And anything that doesn't make it from a anything that didn't get transcribed into a book in the fourth century is basically gone. There's almost nothing that that survives complete that didn't make that first sort of bottleneck. The other one is very much in the the 500s, mm-hmm. where the devastation of Italy and the devastation of a lot of sort of secular record keeping in the warfare of that period means that the predominant train of, uh, chain of transmission now comes through monasteries, it comes from churches and comes through monasteries. And so there you have a selection in favor of theological works, you have a selection in term in favor of the um, sort of Christian poetry and literary works, and a selection against a lot of kinds of historical records. Hmm. And then the final bottleneck is you mentioned Charlemagne earlier earlier in our discussion, and under Charlemagne and his successors, you know, Charlemagne, in this sort of weird, um, you know, atavistic way, wants to turn himself back into a reincarnation of a Roman emperor. And one of the ways to do that is to to bring back, is to start copying all of these ancient texts. And Charlemagne's courtiers, you know, scoured monasteries around um, Europe. They scoured, they they wrote letters to one another, um, finding texts they didn't have. And there's a very good, very little that escaped the Charlemagne's court, right? Very few texts are transmitted to us except via the Carolingians, except via Charlemagne and his successors. Any, anything that wasn't rediscovered and copied under the Carolingians, almost none of that is, is left. So there are three great bottlenecks in the transmission of ancient literature, and those are them. What about, and you have the coins, but what, what about archaeological evidence or um, information? Archaeological evidence is incredibly important. Um, the thing to remember about it is that it doesn't, it almost never confirms the course of events, right? It's not, it's not about the way, it's not about di- facts and dates and at specific times. It's not about the cha- change over time. It gives you sort of glimpses into steady states mm-hmm. of things. So it's vitally important for, our, um, for understanding the economy of the period, uh, tr- not just trade networks, but also what do, you know, what sustains why does this town survive and that town, you know, crumble away into nothingness in the in the three hundreds? What is the economic reason for that? It also tells us a lot about how people lived on the ground. What you know, what the um, one of the big things about the Roman Empire was that, at least at the level of the elites, and you know, down to the middle classes, pretty much everybody, you know, lived in the same style of houses, ate off the same kind of you know tableware. Um, had the same sets of technologies uh, from one end of the empire to the other. And so one of the things that we can see in the period that tragedy covers is the breaking down of this universal um, material culture and yeah. the growth of local cultures. Mm-hmm. It seems that um, shipwrecks, you know, it seems like more and more can be found, especially in the Mediterranean. I mean, it just makes me wonder how much more information 
new information could pop up in the future. One never knows, right? There's always something new coming up. Um, the some new documents tend to be tend to be from an earlier period, but new, um, the, as you say, from shipwrecks. I mean, we learn a great deal more about. We increasingly learned a great deal more about. Um, you know, when when precisely does the the supply system of the imperial state and the imperial army when does it simply stop working? And the answer is that it's it's still going pretty much okay into the later fifth century, but after that it breaks down mm -hmm. completely, and that's what really ends the ancient economy and makes it and, and relocalizes everything. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder about the Black Sea because I don't think that's been explored. You know, shipwrecks and, and archaeological evidence hasn't been explored extensively until recently. No, and that's that's certainly a, go a growth area along the, um, the southern coast of the Black Sea in Turkey and up. Um, and certainly, we're learning a great deal more. I mean, for for, for rather depressing reasons, um, because of the the ongoing um, problems in warfare in Ukraine, mm -hmm. we're getting a lot of it's it, none of it's being done legally or su or or supervised. But we're getting a lot of illegal antiquities coming out and coins coming out of ukraine and they are teach i mean the, it's a bad way to learn about these things we'd be much better if we had proper archaeological digs but we are learning a lot more about the economy of rome's neighbors in this period mm -hmm. thanks to clandestine you know looting mm -hmm. but then that looting does it kind of destroys the um you know without knowing where it was dug up and what layer and all that you lose a lot of historical context it, you lose you lose 98% of the information you can get and so it's um but the and the same thing unfortunately has happened you know it, it it's happened for our knowledge of rome's relationships with persia the uh, you know 20 something years of warfare in afghanistan and and iraq and syria has brought a whole lot of new evidence um out of the ground but it we it has no context um you know, we know a lot more about the chronology of the Persian kings of this period, thanks to coinage. But it's all loot, right? It's all looted, and so it's it's with you know you you have very mixed feelings about that about learning new things from this from this sort of background. You know, is it is it relatively easy to determine? Yes, this is an old object from this from from that time, but beyond that, you can't really get much information. Is it easy to counterfeit? Oh, old, old. Um, some things are easy. Some things are easy to counterfeit. Some things aren't. And I mean, there's no co coins is just so commonplace that there's no, there's really almost no, very few coins that are worth Roman coins that are worth counterfeiting. Put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas you know there are some things like um, the famous Kushan style art from Afghanistan, um, which almost everything that you see is is a fake. Mm. So. Okay. So you've been doing this research for for many years but is there something at least for this the, the latest book was there something that surprised you the most that you came across well yes actually um it was some it was a reminder it was a reminder about how important it is as a historian or a, a scholar to to be familiar with the landscape that you're writing about because mm. uh the in the year 395 there is a major battle um called the Battle of the Cold River, the River Frigius. And it's always been thought, or it's been largely been thought, um, that it was fought somewhere along the Isonzo River, um, or the Socha in, in Slovene, um, and somewhere along the Slovenian stretch of the, of the Socha River. And hiking in the Julian Alps 
I hiked down the Socha from its source and mm. uh, realized that there is literally not a single place along the Socha, Isonzo, where you could have a battle that fielded that many men and that many missile weapons. It simply can't be done. It's such a narrow defile. It couldn't be done. So what that tells me is, I mean, there are plenty of, there, there are lots and lots of cold rivers in Slovenia, <laughs> northern Italy, right? Mm. It's not the Socha. It's it may be the Vipava, it may be another river, but that's what surprised me was the, this this stark reminder that, you know, you can read time and time again that, oh, this is where this happened. And if you walk the landscape, you think to yourself, there is no way that can be right. Mm-hmm. Just no way it can be right. So does that give you an excuse to, to hike every spot that you uh, you write about? Absolutely. Well, I mean, if, if I could, yeah, I would. <laughs> um, what... Uh... And again, there are so many gaps in history, but is there a particular question that uh, that you really would love to get an answer for that maybe is achievable or maybe you'll just never get an answer as far as you can tell? <laughs> so many different things, wow. uh, probably. But I think one of the one of the things and this may simply be my, you know, my my ethnic heritage, but um, the where do the Slavs come from? I would really love more in, more evidence on that because they sort of appear Slavic speakers appear out of nowhere um, somewhere around the sixth century, and you know the people have been fighting about this for ages. They're still fighting about it. It's still wrapped up in all sorts of modern nationalisms, and it can be you know it can be both very ugly and filled with craziness. But mm-hmm. um, I would love to think that there could be some sort of linguistic or and pr- probably have to be linguistic, like early traces of written runes or something that are obviously i and knowing where those were that would that i would find really interesting Mm -hmm. okay was there again with this with research and, and writing about these these old periods i know it can be dry maybe but is there something that struck you that emotionally moved you either positively or negatively oh it can be very dry i think that um you know one of the things that really strikes me is the the sense in the, in so many of this, particularly in this in the period of the late fourth and the early fifth century, mm-hmm. how many of the historical characters we meet were, you know, effectively grew up in highly traumatizing circumstances. It is it's when you stop and think about it in terms of the horrors that they experienced as the that Alaric experienced as a boy, right, in this war torn. Um, in this war-torn part of the Balkans, where uh, where Goths were selling their children into slavery in order to get a dog meat to eat to stop from starving, hmm. these are the sorts of things that you remember. That there are human stories behind, you know, human tragedies behind all of these, you know, stories of warfare, these stories of, of, of conquest. And I think that that sort of it's a reminder that you know human lives lasted, you know, were lived at the same pace back then as they lived now. And you have to remember that these people had backstories and, and sort of emotions and, and 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 lives that are completely invisible to us, but must have been just as diverse and just as filled with sort of sorrows and, and joys as, as ours are. Were the Goths and these other tribes, were, had they been Christianized at this point or? Yeah, they were almost entirely Christian. Okay. Did, did you have any difficulties getting this book uh, finished or published? It sounds like it was a smooth process. 
pretty smooth process. I like, I mean, I like writing. I like writing for a broader audience. Um, I, I like write for the London Review of Books quite a lot. Um, on, on, and these sorts of things, are, you know, I like, re- I like reaching an audience of people who are curious about history, curious about the past, and not just specialists. I mean, it's, it's really exciting to write for ones, to discover new things and write for one's peers, but it's actually a lot more fun, I think, to, um, to, to sort of write for, for a general audience who might want to be, might be figuring out about these things for the very first time. Mm-hmm. How much of the Roman or how much of the population of this area was, was were slaves? It seems like they were a huge portion. There's a huge controversy about how much um how, how prevalent slavery is in the late Roman Empire. It's a, slavery is, is enormously prevalent in the last centuries BC. Like that's that's the main economics of the empire in that in that period. Let's say twenty percent of the population, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly ninety percent of the population lived on the land. Ninety percent of the population were agri- were agriculturalists of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. What's your latest writing project? Uh, so, a colleague of mine, Gavin Kelly at Edinburgh, and I are finishing a translation of probably the single best source for the late Roman Empire, which is Ammianus Marcellinus, who's a uh, Latin, he writes in Latin, even though he comes from a Greek background um, in the Middle East, and he wrote a history that um, su- that survives from the year uh, 353 through to 378. And so we're doing the sort of the first really modern translation that is accessible to, to modern readers. Okay. And when do you plan for that to be completed? Can you say or... <laughs> we, we had hoped it would be done now, but of course we're, we're, we're living through a time where everybody's sort of ambitions were a little bit stalled by this past year of, of lockdown, and so um, we're hoping within within two years. Okay. So what? So with all this research and writing, what what part of it is the most enjoyable for you? Uh, I think it's still probably hiking over archaeological sites, and um, that's undoubtedly the, the, the most fun part of it is is walking miles in the in remote areas to look at, at Roman sites. That's undoubtedly the most fun. But I think that the at a certain level, the writing and imagining imagining an audience that doesn't already know things about this period and trying to make it make it make sense for them. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had the chance to hike uh, North African Roman ruins? I actually have not, and that's one of my great regrets. I've got friends who uh, archeo- who do archaeological digs in Tunisia, and I'm hoping that actually I will get a chance to go down there um, in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where, do you have social media where people can follow your thoughts or updates of your work? Uh, I'm afraid I'm a little bit of a Luddite when it comes to social media. So I okay. think, um, you know, I, I print media uh, are print media are my thing. Okay. So. Yeah, so yeah, people I guess can check out Amazon and the Harvard University. Check out Amazon, yeah. Um, if you want to read some stuff aimed at a at a wider audience, um, the London Review of Books has an archive of, of I don't know fifteen or so of my of my longer essays on various topics, and um, and yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Only that this is uh, only that it's it's exciting. The the late Roman Empire in particular is something that I I know your audience is primarily interested in in military affairs from antiquity to the present. Um, and there's plenty of exciting military history in the late Roman period, but there's so much more behind it. And I think that um, one of the more exciting things is to get behind the get behind the course of events, get behind the flow of 
battles and tragedies and instead look at the voices of the, the people from this period. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I inspire somebody to go and pick up, you know, Amianis or, other, or others and, and learn about how people thought and wrote at the time. All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. In the next episode, I speak with Nathan Gorenstein about the guns of inventor John Moses Browning. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.